It's lovely to see you and uh, a warm welcome as we join to, to worship together this morning. We're going to start by worshipping using two hymns. I will worship with all of my heart. I will praise you with all of my strength. I will seek you all of my days and I will follow all your ways. Father God, we have come here to worship you, to bow our knee before you. And Lord, however small our offering is, we pray that it will please you. Sometimes we don't know how to do things right, how to do things properly. But we know that you see through our insecurities, you see through our weaknesses, and you look straight into our hearts, Lord. So, Father, may our hearts be open to you in our worship, in our prayers, in our thoughts and our readings. And we pray that you will lead us to your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, our friend and our brother. Amen. Thank you, Charles. Morning, everybody. Nigel, good to see you again with us today. Uh, And Emma, I think I saw come in, yes? Lovely to see you here. Helen Andrews is here, Ruth's mum from Birmingham West. And it's good to see Phil and Heather and the girls today as well. Oh, I think I've just spotted Benedict come in as well. Hiya. Gladys, most of you should probably know, is uh, at the MRI now. She's on Ward 27 at the MRI. She seems better over the past few days. She doesn't seem to know how long she is staying in or what's happening. Her blood sugar has been very high and she's being closely monitored. She's happy to receive visitors. Morning, Lucy. And the visiting times are from 2 till 5 p.m. and 6.30 till 8 p.m. It would be nice if somebody could visit this afternoon if possible. And if you are going to visit this afternoon, could you please let Rosie know just so that she she knows that somebody's going today, please. So that's Gladys on Ward 27 at the MRI. We've had some news that Mike Hardy is going in for planned surgery. I think he goes in today to hospital for a surgery tomorrow. It's a planned seven-hour operation, so it's obviously a very significant operation We pray for all those involved in the surgery and ask that Sue and Mike will both feel God's presence and that the surgery will be a success. Our thoughts and prayers are with Rob at the moment as he continues going through his cancer treatment. I don't know if we've got any update on that. Perhaps you could share it in a moment if you have. Mark, you do. So he'll know by the end of this month whether it's operable. Yeah. Um, the plan is that he's going to be laid up for six or eight weeks post-op. And so he's planning now, he'd like the offer of a large freezer with food to fill it. So I said I'm sure we could organise for meals on wheels and or fresh frozen food to be put into a freezer. So if anybody's got a spare freezer and is willing to go on a list of So will you collect that list together? Are you happy to do that? Elaine will. Okay. So that would be starting in a month's time after the operation, if he he was to have it. He needs six weeks' worth of of rest and recuperation and food. Okay. All right. 
Thanks for that, Mark. Simon also writes, we remember those of our members who struggle daily with their health, Pauline, Patricia, Marion and Ian in particular. And we also remember those around the world who struggle with the effects of war and unrest in Syria and Ukraine, particularly at the moment, and pray for the speedy return of our Lord Jesus. So I'm going to offer the welfare prayer in a moment, but I'd ask if you've got anybody else that you'd like included in that prayer, could you tell me now, please? Let's pray together then. Father, we come to you now as our Father, as your children, asking for your care and concern as a parent, as a creator, as the originator of all things, and somebody who is capable of performing miracles. We praise you, Lord, for proving to us time and time again that you have a purpose with this world. And we pray, Lord, that when we struggle to see that purpose, either in the world or in our lives, that you will fill the gaps of confidence and give us faith. We bring before you now, Lord Gladys and Rob and Mike and their various families. And we pray, Lord, that as they face uncertainty, either through continuing ill health or through the surgeon's knife, we pray that you'll comfort them and those around them to know that that they are in your care. Father, we pray that you'll bring them through and bring them safely back to us too. And that you will make us treasure them and value them all the more for coming back to us. That we will find ways to offer help and care, practical and spiritual, to all those that that need it. Father, I know sometimes that people come to this place and they have things that are buried deep inside and that are difficult to talk about in front of everybody else who's here. And there may be things that all of us don't like to talk about. But we know you call us to bring them to you through your son, Jesus. Your call is so loud to us. Through the sacrifice of your son, you show us the love that you have for us. And I pray that you will open our hearts to that call. That you will open us up to the idea that we can bring everything to you in prayer. And that even though we might not like the answer, that you will have an answer. Help Charles as he speaks to us now. That he brings a little bit more understanding, a little bit more insight, a little bit more of Jesus into our lives. Through his name we offer this prayer. Amen. Thank you, Steve. We're going to continue our prayers by singing, Father, hear the prayer we offer, not for ease that prayer shall be, but for strength that we may ever live our lives courageously.
One of the days we were down there, we went for a little walk around, and we came across um, this chapel, which you might just be able to work out on, set into some woodlands as, as we were walking by. I don't think that's flood damage. I think it's been like that for quite a few uh, um, decades. But it's uh, what was once a beautiful chapel um, and a site of worship and reflection is now a place for children to clamber over and for animals to shelter in. We're going to take a reading now, and it's from Exodus. So it's Exodus chapter 35, verse 4, through to chapter 36, verse 7. Exodus chapter 35, starting at verse 4. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, This is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red and hides of sea cows. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle with its tent and its covering, clasps, frames, crossbars, posts and bases, the ark with its poles and the atonement cover and the curtain that shields it, the table with its poles and all its articles and the bread of the presence, the lampstand that is for the light with its accessories, lamps and oil for the light, the altar of incense with its poles, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, the curtain for the doorway at the entrance to the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the bronze basin with its stand, the curtains of the courtyard with its posts and bases and the curtain for the entrance to the courtyard, the tent pegs for the tabernacle and for the courtyard and their ropes, the woven garments worn for ministering in the sanctuary, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved him came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its service and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought Gold jewellery of all kinds, brooches, earrings, rings and ornaments. They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. Everyone who had blue, purple or scarlet yarn or fine linen or goat hair, ramskins dyed red or hides of sea cows brought them. Those presenting an offering of silver or bronze brought it as an offering to the Lord. And everyone who had acacia wood for any part of the work brought it. Every skilled woman spun with her hands and brought what she had spun. Blue, purple or scarlet yarn or fine linen. And all the women who were willing and had the skill spun the goat hair. The leaders brought onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. They also brought spices and olive oil for the light, 
and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord freewill offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill and ability and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic craftsmanship. And he has given him both him and Aholiab, son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as craftsmen, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen, and weavers, all of them master craftsmen and designers. So Bezalel, Aholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord had, has given skill and ability to know how to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left their work and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. So I think this morning is um, building a place of worship, but I'm going to spoil it by giving away the ending, and uh, that is that we're not actually talking about a physical um, place of worship, but a spiritual place of worship uh, where you and I are the uh, building materials. But we can take a lot of lessons from, from the physical, um, which we can carry over. And we read in those um, verses what is really one of the kind of highlights of Israel's um, story, if you like, the way they came together to create this tent of meeting um, to, to God's design. <clears throat> and the first, thing, first question really, I think, is how do you go about building a place of worship? Is there a course you can do at North Trafford College? And how do you actually get the skills to be able to do this properly? Because this is one of the most important things we can do in our lives. Yeah, how do we actually do it? And I think there's a, a really powerful lesson in the way the people came together here. So the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt where they were employed in the construction industry. I say employed, that's probably a bit too gracious a term for, what, for the slavery they wanted. But they were all the time doing construction. And then they spent years wandering through the wilderness where they lived in tents. So they knew how to make tents and to build things. It was what they did. And I think that's actually really important for us to take into our building of our, our um, place of worship. The skills that we have in our day-to-day lives, 
that we learn in jobs, that we learn in interactions with other people, those skills can be transferred into the building of our um, place of worship. But it, it gets souped up, if you like. If you want to flick back to uh, chapter 31 of Exodus, there's a, an earlier introduction to Bezalel and Aholiab. And it talks in verse 2, um, or sorry, verse 3, God says, I filled him with the Spirit of God with skill and ability and knowledge in all kinds of crafts. And then in verse 6 it says, um, I have given skill to all the craftsmen to make everything. I really like that because there are people who are skilled in their day-to-day living at craft and building, and God empowers them. It's like he takes them to a different level, and his spirit flows in them, so that when they're making things for the tabernacle, they do it to an ability which probably they didn't realize they had. But these were day-to-day skills that they used in their, in their normal lives, which God then empowered and to build the tent of meeting. So there's a joining together of human endeavor and God's inspiration. And I think it needs both of those to, um, to produce results. If there's no human endeavor, God won't force us. He won't kind of frog march us off to do, to do the work. Um, but if we just try and do it by ourselves, on the other hand, without any inspiration of God, then we're likely to fail. We'll run out of steam, I think. It's the combination of the two that is so powerful and turn these people into, into master craftsmen as they built. So what skills do you have that you can employ in building this place of worship? And I know this happens um, all the time anyway, but it's worth thinking about and reassessing ourselves as to think about what we can give. I know that we use people's talents to make physical alterations to the building. We also use people's talents in all sorts of other ways. We use people's IT skills. We use people's um, background in social work. Um, All sorts of different avenues that we use in our day-to-day lives come together as we um, build uh, this church. But you might be thinking that that's okay, but I don't actually have anything to offer. And I can tell you, if you are thinking that, that you're wrong. (laughs) Whoever you are, (laughs) you do have something to offer. I once heard uh, Tony Campolo telling a story about a young lad who lost his arm, his right arm, in an accident. And it was devastating for him because all his plans and the things that he thought he could do in the future were just taken away in that one accident. But after that period of devastation, he decided that he was going to try and make the best of it and try and show that with his determination what he could do. So he decided to take up judo. And so he found a judo teacher who was prepared to take on a a one-armed judoist <laughs> and uh, he said will you teach me how to do judo so the, the teacher said okay so I'll show you this move and so the first week they practiced this move the second week they practiced this move again the third week, the fourth week, the fifth week they practiced this one move uh, at this stage the, the lad was getting a little bit frustrated and said oh, okay um, this is going quite well but can I do maybe some competitions try and do something different and so the teacher said, okay, you, you can enter this competition. So he put me in for the competition, one-armed judo, judoist with one move. And uh, he got through the first round. He got through the second round. He got through, the th- got through to the final. And lo and behold it, the one-armed judoist with one trick won the competition. And he went to the teacher, I can't believe that. I've got one arm. I've only got one move. How did I win that competition? 
And the teacher said, well, there's two things. The first is that the move that I've taught you, it's only one move, but it is one of the best moves in all of judo. And the second thing is, there's only one way for your opponent to defeat that move, and that's by grabbing your right arm. (laughs) So his weakness was turned into his greatest strength. So you may only see your weaknesses, but God will see those as your greatest strengths. And you do have something to offer in the building of God's place of worship. You might also be thinking, well... I'm not that important. I'm just one of the small guys. I don't think really I should be involved in, in, in the, uh, the running or the building of this place. I'll just sit quiet in the corner because I'm not important enough. But we have here Bezalel and Aholiab to tell us that that's not the way to think. Um, what can we tell you about Bezalel and Aholiab? Well, about Bezalel, we can tell a great deal. Um, in terms of double acts, they're a bit like Little and Large. Remember Little and Large from about 20 years ago, Saturday Night TV, Little and Large? Well, Bezalel and Aholiab were Little and Large in, in uh, importance terms. Um, Bezalel, he was of significant pedigree. He came from the tribe of Judah, the, the big tribe where kings would later come from. And his grandfather was a man called Hur. And I don't even remember the story where um, there was a battle going on and Moses had to keep his arms up for the um, Israelites to win the battle. And if they fell, they started losing the battle. So he enlisted some people to try and help him win the battle by keeping his arms raised up. Remember that story? Well, one of the people who was holding his arms up was Hur, who was uh, Bezalel's um, grandfather. And there's also a, a tradition, a Jewish tradition, that Hur was married to Miriam, um, one of the other prominent figures of the story of the Israelites. So Bezalel had great pedigree. He was an important character. Aholiab, uh, I can't really tell you much about him. He's, part, he's from the tribe of Dan, which is kind of one of the smallest tribes. Not all that significant. But that in itself is significant. Here God chose two people. One who probably a lot of people knew and one who probably nobody knew. <clears throat> and he combined them together to lead and inspire the people in the making of this place of worship. So we're all equally important in this building project. The other amazing thing about this passage is how the people uh, were to give. We read it at the last part of that section, but if you just go to chapter 36. In verse 2. It says, Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out and the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring free will offerings, morning after morning. So all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work in the sanctuary left their work and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work of the Lord, the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order. And they sent this word throughout the camp. No more man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because they already had more than enough to do the work. That is amazing, isn't it? That they had to be restrained from uh, giving the gifts. Now, you could be cynical about this and say, um, well, those, the things they brought, the gold and the finery, were just stuff that they'd kind of taken uh, at the last minute from the Egyptians and they didn't really have any use for it. Maybe they're just trying to get rid of it. But I think that would be a very, very uh, cynical way of of doing it. These things were precious beyond all measure that they were giving up. Um, Throughout the Middle East, And they would have had needs for trading. 
to, um, to sustain themselves. They had been of high value to them. Yet they gave them and kept on giving and kept on giving um, until there was too much and they had to be restrained. That is, that's more than saying, okay, that's enough and they all cleared off. To restrain has the implication of almost holding back, doesn't it? They were so desperate to offer something to be used in this, in this work. And they also seem to do it without question also. They weren't saying, I'm prepared to give this gold brooch up, but I want to make sure that you use it for the most important part of the tabernacle. And if you could just squeeze my initials onto the candelabra, that would be, be lovely. There's none of that. It was just habits. Use it how you will, because I want, I want to be part of this, this building. And that's a massive challenge uh, for me um, to, to witness and try and put myself in that position of offering freely and without prejudice, without question, without strings attached, just to give. So this instant teaches us that God will use us and inspire us in the skills that we already have to build a place of worship. And that when we bring with um, willingly, that he will use whatever we have. One thing that this chapel and this tabernacle have in common is that they're both in ruins. Um, The tabernacle obviously later on became a temple, but even though with those kind of uh, bricks and foundations, it now lies in ruins. We actually passed this this chapel twice, unintentionally. Um, We were carried on our walk, and we had a slightly uh, unplanned meeting with a bull. So we had to reverse, and uh, despite Lucy's best efforts to charge against the bull, we, we had to restrain her, and, uh, and we, we came back. But it was just there, nestled in the woodland. If you weren't paying attention, you could easily have missed it. Overgrown, trees all around it, um, shrubbery all over it, bits missing. It's in ruins. But what we are building is something which keeps on growing. It's been growing for centuries, and it doesn't lie in ruins. Rather, it keeps on growing in glory as extra bits are added. Let's look at a key passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, And someone else is building on it. But each one of you should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we are both the raw materials and the builders. And how much more enhanced is our fellowship when we realize that, when we acknowledge it? when we think about it, when we see it in our brothers and sisters, when we see that you and I are more precious than all that gold and fine linen that went to make the tabernacle, that you and I are here for the long term, for posterity, that we are part of this place of worship that has been growing for centuries um, since Paul um, wrote these words. One of the great tragedies of that chapel is that it's got bits missing, most notably a roof. (laughs) And because it has bits missing, 
it looks ruined. And the spiritual church, if it has bits missing, is not the same. If you're not there, then that bit can't be filled by anyone else. You are precious, more precious than the gold of the tabernacle. And if you're not there, there's a gap. We all need alterations, bits that need to be knocked off to make a good fit. That's part of it. But we need to recognize within ourselves um, the treasure within. Once I was doing a service, I was putting the words up on the uh, PowerPoint. and It was for brother, sister, let me serve you. And I mistyped it, so it was bother, sister, let me serve you. And the, the female... Um, sound frequency, there was a, a certain uproar. <laughs> the, the lower male frequency was like... <laughs> um, but sometimes do we see each of those bothers? Not just the males, this as well. <laughs> we are precious, more precious than the gold that went into the tabernacle. But this passage flips it around and says, we're not just the raw materials, we're also builders too. We're actively involved in, in, in building up. And if we analyse what we do and, and how we act, are we doing that? Are we actively looking um, to build? It says later on in Corinthians, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. So it's a simple test. Do what we do. Does what we do knock down? Does it stagnate? Or does it build up? Does it lift people up? so that they can be the best that they can be, so that they can stand in glory in this place of worship. Not their own glory, but God uh, working through them. In Ephesians, Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So we are building And we have to make sure that everything that we do, every action, every word, is in tune with that goal of building a place of worship which is filled with the glory of God. And of course, the most important part comes at the end. Verse 11, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. No matter how spectacular the building is, If the foundation isn't right, it won't last. The sandcastle that we spent ages doing on Tuesday is no longer there. Washed away with the tide and the rain, no longer present. And however good it was, and it was good, let me tell you, um, it's not there anymore. If the foundations are right, then it will last. And Paul is unequivocal here. He, He takes himself out of the picture and says, the foundation is Jesus. Paul was a mentor, and we all need mentors and giants whose shoulders we stand on. But fundamentally, the foundation is Jesus. It's probably no, uh, it's, it's a good picture to think that the, um, when larger churches than this were built, they were built in the shape of the cross, and um, with the east wings and north south wings. And that's probably a powerful picture of us to take into building the foundation of our place of worship that should be built in the shape of the cross. So we're both building and builders, we're not building for our own pride, but for God's glory, using whatever skills and resources that he has given us. Just some words from Ephesians 2, verse 19. 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Built on our Lord Jesus Christ, the foundation, the chief cornerstone, and who we're going to remember now. We're going to sing How Deep the Father's Love for Us. We're going to share bread and wine now, and Phil is going to offer our thanks to the bread. Lord God, our Father, we have been encouraged this morning to think about the fellowship that we share together in the building of our lives and our characters to you. And Lord, we've also thought about that foundation stone that we build our lives upon. Lord Jesus, we look to that foundation and we reflect now on this gift of bread. This bread which shows to us that sacrifice when you died upon the cross and you gave your life for us. That bread symbolizes to us your broken body for us. Lord, help us to reflect on this time now, this time that we partake of the bread. May it help us and may it encourage us. Help us to look forward to continuing our lives as we build a temple for you, Lord, with your help. So please hear our prayer, Lord, and we ask it through Jesus. Amen. John Dan is going to offer our thanks to Wayne. Dear Holy Father, we, we come to say thank you, but you who are the maker of everything and you who fill all of the universe and all of time, how on earth can I say thank you to you? How can we say thank you? We, we don't even appreciate the good things, the wonderful things that you've done for us, let alone are able to express in any sense a thank you to you. But I know you, Father, I know that you are the God who does everything out of love. You made us because you love us. You loved us before you made us. You put everything into its place and in order and set everything in motion because you love us. You knew that we would fall yet you still love us. And you sent Jesus not to pay for your love, not to pay you anything, but to show us how much you love us. That, Father, is sort of beyond my thinking, and and I'm absolutely certain it's beyond everybody else's thinking. I don't understand that. You are love. Every 
if I could say every atom of you, every molecule, every tiny bit of you is love. And that's why you sent Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming, Lord, to show us God. Not to persuade God, not to pay him, but to show us the God who loves us. This bread and wine, I know, Lord, I know they're only symbols. They're they're just at the end of the day, just bread and wine. That's all they are. But they speak to us about a reality that is something extraordinary and something incredibly special. They speak to us about, yes, about a church, about a body, about a building, but a building made up of people with you as the foundation. You said, Lord Jesus, that we had to eat you and drink you. I know that's not in a literal sense, and yet it is, because I know that what we've got to do is take you into us. And Lord, when we drink this wine, and this this symbolizes your blood, your life, that what we've really got to do is to take your life, you, Lord Jesus, into us it's so easy Lord for us to just sit here and when it comes round just to take a piece of bread and to sip a piece of a little bit of wine and sort of let it pass Lord Jesus I want you to touch each one of us so that when we take this it is just wine it's nothing more than that but When we take it, we will be aware of the fact that we need to drink you, to drink your life into us. We need to let your life fill us and take over us and motivate us to the point that we will want to be like you. We too will want to give our lives for each other and for others. To show your love. To show people what your father is like. A father who doesn't stop at anything but goes all the way to the bitter end. A father who was with you on the cross, suffering and being insulted and being rejected and with you in your death because he wants to appeal to us and to bring us close to himself. Holy Father, thank you. Lord Jesus, thank you. Bless us now in your service. Amen. This wine represents the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the love that it shows us guide all our building. I don't know much about uh, buildings, but I, I guess that the bigger, the taller, the heavier a building is, <clears throat> the stronger its foundation has to be. We are part of a building which is hundreds of generations high. And by God's grace, it will extend for eternity. 
How strong must that foundation be? Jesus, the foundation that never fails. And what a privilege to be part of that building. Just a tiny part, but all the same, a part of something that has existed for so long and will continue to exist. And how important it is that we focus and make sure that we are still within that foundation, that we aren't hanging off and off the footprint uh, that Jesus has laid for us. We're going to close by singing together two songs, the last of which will be our closing prayer. So first of all, I want to serve the purpose of God. Prayer will be, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven.